1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me is ITK analyst and new proud owner of an electric car, David Leach. David, how are you?
2: Uh, I'm well, thanks, Giles. It's raining here in Sydney, of course, and it's going to keep raining, so... Uh, you know, it's good to be talking about electricity, uh, but there's certainly—I think we had a report from the IPCC this that says that uh, you know we better get on with things, and some of us are, and some of us aren't. Uh, but uh, things have been happening in Europe as well, haven't they, Giles?
1: Well, they certainly have. I mean, uh, the geopolitical uh, situation there, and uh, more specifically, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has caused all sorts of reactions in many parts of our society, and particularly the energy, energy industry. And one of the big questions, as people consider sanctions and long-term political fallout from this invasion, invasion is can Europe do without... Russian oil and gas? And the answer is not as simple as um, if anyone actually thought it was going to be simple. It's certainly not. Um, David, um, you did an interview with two folk from Bloomberg New Energy Finance earlier on this week. Why don't you introduce this um, interview?
2: Yeah, so uh, BNEF uh, produced a report discussing the possibility of uh, Europe reducing its dependence on uh Russian gas imports very substantially um, within 12 months. And uh, I, talk, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to Emma Champion, who is the uh, Head of Transitions at, in, in Europe for BNEF, Energy Transitions, and Stefan Ulrich, uh, a leading member of the uh, BNEF uh, gas team, about not just uh, what's happening in the short term with uh, gas in Russia, uh, but also what it means for the medium-term transition that Europe is uh, driving to renewables. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Emma Champion um, and also Stefan Ulrich to Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, thanks very much for joining. Uh, Stefan, I thought I might uh, start with you because as um, I guess the reason for this call was to discuss what's essentially the what I think the Repower Europe uh, commitment to try and reduce uh, European gas consumption uh, by about 100 uh, BCM uh, by the end of this calendar year. And I should say for our listeners' benefits that one of the reasons why I personally have thought that gas will never be successful as a transition fuel is that there's just so many units it's impossible for almost anyone to understand whether we're talking petajoules, terajoules, uh, BCF, uh, MMBTU, British Therms, or, or tons of LNG. But uh, I think if we stick with a billion cubic meters, uh, um, how realistic is it, Stefan? Do you think that uh, to, to how fast can, can Europe reduce its uh, imports of gas or, from Russia?
3: Uh, it's an ambitious target. That's for sure. So Russia supplies around a third of Europe's gas imports. um, So around a third of European demand. Uh, This is part of a series of aims uh, for the EU to completely wean itself off imports of Russian hydrocarbons. So including coal and oil by 2027. So this is just the first step. And uh, as they say, sometimes the first step is the hardest, uh, which is definitely the case with, with this ambitious plan.
2: I, I guess uh, the alternative to that is that every journey starts with a single step. Uh, and But I guess this would, would be a big one. And I think the, the note that you guys published said that in the first instance that's going to come from importing more LNG. Uh, again, uh, how uh, LNG plants we know from Australia, which is just about the world's largest producer, uh, take a long time to build uh, and there's been quite a lot of demand f- growth for LNG and it's not that easy to increase production in a big hurry, is it?
3: Yeah, exactly correct. Um, your average LNG uh, facility takes around uh, four to five years to build once you've got, um, once you've sorted all of the financials, which can often take take years or even longer, and um, so it's not going to be a case of the global LNG market suddenly producing more supply, uh, but this is causing real big knock-on effects in the global LNG market for Europe to to attract the LNG it needs.
2: Yes, and, and so, I'll, 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 well, let's just stay with that for a second. I want to come back to the economic side of it in a moment, but... Uh, how much spare capacity is there in the, in the global LNG uh, market? I guess, you know, my experience is that LNG trains want to operate as close to full capacity as they can.
3: Um, yeah, that, that's correct. So unlike the oil market or the international oil market where you, you generally try and have a bit of spare capacity from producers, um, global LNG supply generally tends to run at, at close to as 100% as it can um weather and maintenance permitting uh, so this really has to be a reorganization of trade flows um and so demand in in other parts of the world for for europe to to attract the gas that it needs
2: and I guess um where where do you see um, demand for lng uh being reduced uh to to make room for extra imports to europe?
3: Um, so uh, at Bloomberg NEF, we recently sub, uh, published our global gas summer outlook. So that's a, a view of the gas markets globally. Um, and one surprising finding from that was that the key, uh, the general key import markets of Japan, Korea and China combined um, could actually see their gas demand falling this summer. Um, so real big change um, from the usual state of affairs, especially for China in that case, um, Japan and Korea slightly less so. Um, but also, I think in more price sensitive markets where, where demand was really starting to grow when we had low global LNG prices, um, such as the markets of South Asia, um, barring, a few expe- uh, barring a few exceptions, um, this is where we're really going to see demand growth slow down um, or even decline.
2: And, you know, as a short term, I do electricity price forecasting for a living, and I know how ridiculous price forecasting is uh, um, uh, as a concept. But I think we're talking the Japanese uh, uh, price, uh, JKM, is something like uh, US $40, or uh, maybe it's uh, a gigajoule at the moment, which I seem to think makes for some ridiculous uh, European total uh, value of, of 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 the gas market. If you were uh, to to put that through, eight hundred billion or something. I think I got. Uh, what do you see is happening to what's happening with gas prices, and what do you th- in Europe, and what do you think uh, the outlook is over the next twelve months?
3: Um, uh, yeah, I think unless you get a reversal in in Russian flow policy, that that's going to be the case. Um, so fundamentally, Europe has to price higher than Asia. Uh, to attract uh, LNG supply, um, which is uncontracted from places like the US um, or Africa. And so this is really what has been pushing global prices together. Um as unlike Europe, Asia has even fewer um, alternatives when it comes to to gas purchasing. Um of course, a lot of Asian demand is locked up in long term contracts, but there is still some, some going to the spot market to meet to meet Asian gas demand, which is why you've had these two prices really rise in unison. Um, But as said, uh, in order for Europe to attract the LNG supply it needs, it needs to price um, more attractively for especially U.S. exporters, um, which has pushed prices to the record levels we see now. And as we speak, and for large parts of the last month, um, Europe has maintained this this premium to Asian prices, um, very thin, only like a dollar or so per per MMBTU. Um, um, so that's that's really this this state in uh, state we're in in the global gas market.
2: But I uh, I guess uh, and, and I want to uh, very much come on to the. Uh... Transition and what it all means for the medium term, uh, which is, I think, what I'm ultimately going to be more interested in. But uh, uh, just in the short term, I mean, the, what you're saying is that it can actually be done if, uh, you know, provided you pay enough money, you will, uh, Europe will get enough LNG.
3: Um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much the stance I would take. I think our our current uh, forecasts show us getting to around 80% of the year-on-year 50 BCM which the European Commission is targeting but yeah that comes at at quite a a heavy cost Um, and yeah I think that's also before we moving on to some of the more medium-term and longer-term issues when this is uh, this really changes the dynamics that a lot of people had expected for the global LNG market and pushes the market one from one where I think we probably had enough supply to meet Asian demand growth um, to one where in a mild state of undersupply.
2: Yes, but uh, that's from, uh, I guess, uh, and <laughs> this is where, you know, I think the whole um, uh, petrochemical, including gas market, is so cautious because we've seen these price signals from time to time before uh, and then you get the investment, and then by the time it comes on in six or seven years, really, but um, uh, uh, the things have changed a lot. But I just, uh, ref- just last question for you for the time for the moment, Stefan, is just when you look at in the BEF note that I was using, about one third of the gas or something a little less is being used for power generation in Europe. Um, but can't that be replaced by, in the short term, by I guess coal? Much as I hate to say that word.
3: Um, unfortunately, not. Um, I think Europe has has looked to shut down a lot of its coal capacity, and um, plants haven't really, and in in some ways, thankfully, have not received strong signals that they'll be allowed to continue for the medium term. So. You've seen that um although policymakers are now considering slowing down some of the phase outs for this year and next year, plants which were already to uh shut down um haven't really ramped back up, which is why gas's gas's share in European generation, at least for now, has, has stayed relatively relatively stable. Um
4: I think um mm-hmm hi david sorry to sorry to cut in there, but I think Stefan's making a really important point as well because we when we think about what's happening in the in the European electricity markets the we have the carbon price here which is also trying to keep coal out of the mix and Stefan's right that there are a lot more um important drivers that operators are having to consider when you know considering winding down their coal assets and they have. Plans and um, stockpiles of coal that they probably don't want to use up super quickly if they have to meet strategic reserve or capacity market obligations. There's there's a lot of considerations that need to go into play, and you can't just max out coal even in the short term.
2: Yes, uh, well, let, let's. Uh, I, I guess, and it's ob- it's pretty obvious that um, uh, industrial gas uses of gas, pr- process gas. Uh, can 't be switched out uh, in the short term. You can always do something to turn thermostats and stuff down uh, if if consumers are forced to bear the cost uh, that can can always be done but i 'd like to uh, Emma, try and understand what um, I guess one of the things about talking to experts such as yourself is not just about the facts of the matter but that you guys are close to the uh, vibe if I can put it that way <laughs> in Europe and i'd like to understand what the underlying feeling is towards the uh, you know uh, decarbonising europe uh, uh, uh you know is it going to go faster or slower uh mm. as, as can it go faster or slower than it's than it's going at the moment
4: yeah totally i think like look when when russia invaded ukraine um the european commission um made it very very mm. clear that the the main solution to this crisis is to accelerate the transition and they're seeing this as a real lever to push the pace of the EU green deal targets um I think there's there's no questioning that that you know at least in in our view as well um is probably one of the only ways to actually deeply drive out um Russian gas demand in, in the medium uh, and long term So in terms of what the plan is, the the short term, of course, as you guys have talked about so far, you've got this real big focus on diversifying your supply. So the LNG is obviously, um, I think it's about 50 percent of the whole um, repower EU package plan. Right. But then there's also a couple other supply diversification angles that they're trying to go with. There's behavioral energy saving and, of course, um, some attempt to kind of front load some renewable energy build. Um, we, we don't think that they're unreasonable targets for the for the for the renewables bill. the 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 solar target, for example, is pretty like, you know, I think our solar team is pretty confident that that can be met. But there are really quite meaningful bottlenecks to onshore wind in Europe still, which we think is going to play quite an important role in Um, dampening progress towards even that 2030 target that the European Commission set. I think it's um, not shy of 400 and is it 480 gigawatts of onshore um, wind in total by Europe and our forecasts get really nowhere near that. So uh, on the wind side at least you really need to accelerate build, you need to have some pretty fast plans in place to accelerate um, progress on things like permitting bottlenecks. So in terms of Um, the the transition side that this focus on driving renewable energy build is going to be such a fundamental part of actually reducing gas um, demand in Europe. And, you know, we, we, we think that that's probably one of the key levers that they, the Commission can pull in the medium term from from the power sector, but you also, and, and I'm sure Stefan can also comment here, because we have a lot of other sectors that do use the, uh, gas as well, you know, power is only a third of the mix. Um, we need to talk about heating, and the the questions that come up there, I think are even much uh, are even uh, less clear from um, the policy standpoint in terms of the strength of support for for actually you know helping consumers to take out their gas boilers. That's that's not um, quite as advanced, I would say, as the conversation that we're having on on renewables.
2: So yes, it's probably easier to work. Uh, well, I don't know whether it's easy to work from consumer driven stuff like heat pumps or uh, supplier driven stuff like uh, wind and solar let's let's just talk about these one at a time very briefly if if you could right. so on the solar thing i mean we're privileged here in australia that we can get capacity factors in in solar in uh, at utility solar pro of you know 25 26 28% and even on rooftop we can probably manage 15% and australia has of course the most per capita rooftop solar by some distance in the world uh, but in Europe, the capacity factors generally are a lot less and Europe's just not one place. I mean, it's a lot sunnier in, in uh, Spain and even parts of Italy than it is in, in, in Germany. Uh, I mean, there's going to be regional difference. How is the solar build out going to proceed?
4: I mean, we we actually see more solar coming online than the Commission does. So they they have this four hundred and twenty gigawatt target as part of the Repower EU package. Um, we think that we'll get to over five hundred gigs by by twenty thirty in in Europe. So that um, that side of things is happening because um, even though you're right, we do have lower capacity factors of solar in Europe. But really, what's um, driving um build is both a combination of you still have some options for developers to you know come into the market with uh, subsidy contracts um but we also have fundamentals driving driving things prices being this high um there are a lot of people interested in even merchant exposure at this point um in the in the european markets for for new solar projects and we've been saying this for a long time now that the Um, that tipping point where building a new solar plant in most parts of Europe now is cheaper than running even an existing gas or or coal fired power plant. And and the reason I stress that is because that is a really important tipping point from the fundamentals perspective where you do start to get Build happening because it's it's cheaper, it's more competitive to to deliver electricity um, with solar than it is with the existing um, thermal fleet that we have. So that is that, and the policy support is really driving driving things on the solar side, despite the fact that we have. You're right, we're less uh, solar rich. May, maybe in the maybe in the southern European regions like so uh, Spain, uh, Italy, Portugal, um, where we we do have pretty good resource potential. But even even in the less um, less sunny parts of i mean i'm yeah. i'm sitting in yeah. london you know, it snowed here <laughs> yesterday <laughs> and we still and we still
2: have some solar so yeah <laughs> uh look it's the end of summer here and it felt like it was going to snow in uh, uh, sydney after it had stopped raining for the past three months every day but look um um uh, 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 this comes in wind now you, you mentioned onshore wind has permitting issues but solar doesn't uh uh, which is kind of strange to me. Um, um, and then in Australia, we have this massive thing about transmission capacity, you know, that the uh, having to be reconfigured. Mm. What is the essential issue with permitting? Well, let me ask another way what, offshore wind takes a bit longer to develop, but it seems to me that that's been where all the growth has been in Europe yeah. in the past few years. Can't you just push that a little bit harder?
4: Yeah yeah good question um so on the on the onshore wind side really the biggest challenges are related to both the what we call NIMBYism where you know people are in favour of renewables in theory, but actually, when you're putting a project in, their, you know, near to their house, social really...
2: license. Social license, Emma is the word I preferred, to NIMBYism, but I get you
4: <laughs> exactly. So you you do have some local oppositions to projects, and um, including issues with actually just getting access to land in some in some parts of um, in some parts of Europe where there's you know maybe a little bit more fragmented ownership. Um, I think these challenges have been there for the onshore wind industry for for a while in Europe. We, particularly in Germany, particularly in Italy, um, we've seen some really slow progress on deploying onshore wind compared to the decade before, um, and. You're right. That has made a lot of I mean, here in the UK, we we basically had a a moratorium on new onshore wind projects in England, um, which has made it really difficult to put new projects online. And it's made politicians look offshore. So they're building, you know, massive scale offshore wind projects, which are a pretty um, attractive way to deliver, um, you know, pretty high We get pretty high capacity factors here in the North Sea and um, many parts of Europe have good resource potential for offshore wind. But the biggest challenge with offshore is that you have a pretty long lead time on building a new project. It can take anywhere between eight to 10 years to put a new project uh, into the market. And what that means is that if you're thinking, I want to squeeze out um, all of this gas from my mix by 2027, as um, Stefan alluded to earlier, that's really difficult if um, you want to bank on offshore wind because you just can't deliver the capacity in, in that time frame. This is really a post-2030, 2035 solution, really, for any build that you want to add on top of the current pipeline.
2: But, Emma, we've, I, 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 I don't, uh, I, I'm sure that's right, historically. I'd say two things. One, as the industry gears up it, and if it was uh, on a, how can I put it, wartime footing, uh, it's 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 possible to, uh, to do up, a lot so. more than you than, than than you think you can. And if you're looking at a longer term solution, and you think it's offshore wind, um, then maybe more can be done faster. If if uh, I guess wh- how much willpower what what does it take to actually make that sort of yeah. thing happen?
4: I think I think you're you're right. Okay, I'm just looking at our um our offshore wind, our onshore and offshore wind targets stacked and um we've got 480 gigs by the commission we think you can get about 260 of that as onshore wind by 2030 and we think you get to about 60 uh of offshore so adding those two together you still need like 80 gigawatts of additional offshore wind by 2030 to meet the commission's target and that is um you know more than double what the what the capacity base would be um by that date so it's it's not a case of could we bring some yes you're right there there is definitely streamlining of processes happening the industry is scaling things are getting more efficient um project development is definitely you know we we're, we're now at a phase of the offshore wind industry that where it's it's much um quicker to scale that new capacity but I, yeah, I, I think adding an extra 80 on top of the just 60 that we're seeing, um, that's that's a big ask for the sector.
2: It is a big ask. And can I ask in general, like uh, in terms of the social license for offshore wind and the actual physical capacity for it and the required transmission build, um, do you see any fundamental blocks to the growth of the industry uh, in those areas?
4: Um, not so much. I think this is actually. I mean, I I'm, I'm not a wind analyst at you it. Know, we have a massive uh, wind team that are probably better placed to answer this question. But what, from my perspective, this is where actually some of the most exciting innovations are happening in the European energy space. Like we have TSOs across markets collaborating on creating offshore grids that can help to integrate much more capacity than ever has been done before. You know, offshore, and you know, creating the new kind of markets that you need to enable offshore wind that is inherently going to be um, wanting to potentially supply to multiple countries and serve almost as like a new hub of interconnection. That That's really um, pretty cool, I think. And there's some, you know, there are some structural issues with how grids are developed you know some markets you get the grid connection and the tso builds that um if you're an offshore wind developer and others where you're still responsible and that does lead to some irregularities in how the grid uh offshore grid is regulated in in the region but i think by and large there's It's something that I would expect to kind of keep pace. You know, I think we had this discussion um, for a while with um, EV adoption. People said, well, is charging infrastructure going to keep up? Like, isn't that going to be the big bottleneck? And ultimately, we haven't really seen a lot of evidence of that actually happening. By and large, people have been keeping up the pace of deploying that infrastructure in the region. So I kind of I would expect the same to happen with, with offshore wind. And
2: let's uh, just come back then to the consumer driven thing, uh, which is partly around uh, electric vehicles and it's also rooftop solar and household batteries. And in Europe, it's also around heat pumps. Um, maybe you could just talk about what you think's going on in that area generally and how things might look in three or five years time across that spectrum compared to how they look at now.
4: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, heat pumps, and um, I'm sure from a behavioural standpoint, Stefan can also comment here on the gas side, but the there are quite a few really important barriers to understand when we think about consumer uptake of heat pumps here in Europe. Um, the biggest one is is the CapEx, like the sheer upfront cost for consumers of installing a heat pump is pretty prohibitive. Um, you know, often you might have to retrofit a property or, you know, it, it, it's it's quite a expensive um ask compared to you know just replacing your gas boiler um
2: early adopters
4: exactly and the the, the mark the manufacturing base is still pretty fragmented you know some some markets like in the nordics are very advanced and um, others are, are less so and the second big <laughs> challenge is that you you also have relative um energy cost disparities between gas and electricity so at least you know here in the uk um, the costs that get passed down to consumers are taxed very very differently um, electricity is um, subject to quite a, quite a few more um and more hefty taxes than than gases and what that means in the relative economics of having a heat pump versus a gas boiler is that um, it's often almost like you're you're taking a penalty for using electricity to supply your heating rather than just using gas. So there has been a big uh, discussion over the last few years in Europe to kind of reform the way that the energy price um, and taxations work. A few markets are already testing this out. I think Denmark is a pretty uh, relatively recent example where they've tried to shift the tax burden, especially for things like renewable energy subsidies that often get fed through onto electricity bills, trying to shift that onto a bit more of a balance between electricity and gas and therefore help to mitigate the the disparity in the costs. Um, But we also have to talk about the fact that even though today you might be thinking, well, well, gas is super expensive. So surely electricity is going to uh, and, you know, maybe running my house with a heat pump is going to be the cheaper way to go. Um, but unfortunately, in most markets, um, electricity costs, uh, prices are also being set by gas. So we're, we also we're in a high gas, high electricity price environment. I, I,
2: I get it. And uh, what about the um, what about the rooftop solar side of things then? Uh, can that make uh, much of an impact?
4: yeah i think i think um you know we're we're pretty we're pretty confident that that additional build that that i can't remember the exact figure that the European commission is targeting but i think it's like doubling the rooftop build this year right which is pretty um you know pretty ambitious and i think our view on what that would take is that you would probably need um some form of rooftop solar mandates or additional subsidies to actually trickle that through. Um, like you mentioned earlier, we we do have economic solar build in Europe, but it's not quite the same as I, I think where you're where you're coming from in Australia, where the, the market is um, much more established.
2: Yeah, uh, look, I, I I want to actually ask about EVs in a minute, but I, I just might come back to to Stefan and ask. I mean, mm. um. You know, in the medium term, um, considering the demand destruction that has to occur with gas prices this high, if, if they stay that high, how do you see European gas uh, consumption growth over, you know, a three to five year period? Where, where will we be in five years, would you guess, in total relative to today?
3: Yeah, really interesting, really interesting question. And I think this was really handled in an interesting manner um, in the RE power proposal, um, REU power proposal. Um, I think the document focused a lot on actually supporting demand, so um, measures for governments to support industrial players, um, measures for measures to uh, you know use mechanisms already existing in the um European carbon market um to mitigate some of these high prices so in terms of demand destruction although we're seeing levels currently um around i would say 10% in eu industrial gas demand um it, it's not i'm I'm not sure how uh economically and politically politically feasible it is to, is to carry that over through through the medium term um in terms of your uh, consumer sector um we think the assumption the eu makes that which, energy... which for listeners
2: is, which for listeners is about a, a third of total european gas yeah. consumption
3: Exactly. So you're you're looking that your that total demand from industrial industrial changes is around three percent lower than it currently is. Um, so, um, uh, which you know is is I guess um, about like five to ten percent of all all of the Russian gas we need to displace. So it's it's pretty small for major economic pain um, at the moment, uh, especially in some industries. Um, in terms of the residential side of things, I, I think the EU is targeting around, um, I think it's 14, uh, 14 BCM. So that's, um, doing some quick maths here, similar around like 3 to 4% of total demand from uh, consumer behavior changes this year. Um, again, we think that estimate is probably, probably in line with levels we're starting to see in a few countries where price increases are, are being passed down to customers and... And and where customers are beginning to feel this pain, but again, um, there's been increasing talk uh, I mean, about.
2: Ultimately, speaking like a, a, an economist, which I'm not, I'm a financial analyst. But uh, uh, you know, if you don't price works right, if you don't let uh, if you don't let everyone see what the price is, you aren't going to get the behaviour change, are you?
3: Exactly, and um, exactly that's that's a that's a good summary of it. And uh, and as 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 I was about to come on to um you've seen a lot more talk in the e c about supporting consumers and and supporting um supporting demand rather than uh, to some extent letting letting consumers see the price and drive down demand which is of course completely politically um understandable um uh but the demand demand side of things could uh, could do more but for the reasons i've highlighted is is unlikely to do to do much more, um, especially when you start thinking more over over the medium term. I think I just want to flag one thing, which uh, which we highlighted was was slightly lacking in the proposal, and that was energy efficiency. Um, yes. So we found that measures there were were really quite light. Um, no speeding up of um, of existing processes, um, and those measures could really could really take take a dent, um, especially in a region where. Around 80% of homes in Europe are regarded as energy inefficient, and also where some of these energy efficiency improvements are are really needed to install alternative heating solutions, such as. Stefan, I don't
2: don't want to spend too much time on this, but although it's a fascinating topic uh, that I'm really interested in, but can you just tell me, like, would most? How I mean, uh, my perception is that nearly everyone in Europe's got double glazed windows, for instance, or glassing. Would, and, that, and that there would be insulation in, 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 in roofs, that, that sort of uh, energy efficiency. How do you mean they're energy inefficient?
3: Um, I would say, unfortunately, that's not the case. When I'm speaking from the UK, which, which I think it's fair to say has, has a particular problem with this. So um, the house I live in uh, just got double glazing um, this summer, actually. Um from from having from having a few cracks in uh, single glazed uh, windows, so um, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of improvements which could be done with with European uh, building stock. So, um, at a first estimate, we reckon that energy efficiency improvements alone could save around uh, nine billion cubic meters of, of gas demand um, before 2030 if you really push things. Stefan, i Go sorry.
4: sorry. I was just going to respond to Stefan and actually maybe ask him a question. Sorry to take your uh, (laughs) what you were going to say, David. Um, If we are kind of essentially saying that the commission's target for behavioral energy saving is at odds with what it's also doing on the pricing side and trying to shield the impact of this. um, You know, you're not really going to get that um, price discovery slash demand destruction angle really kicking in. And they're also overlooking energy efficiency that you know that that behavioral um energy saving is just going to be so far missed as a target you know it uh, i'm not saying that as a b nephew just as a you know in theory could they um miss that target because they're overlooking um, energy efficiency measures and if that is the case would they be better off you know really focusing on um, spending the money on supporting energy efficiency in the building stock and helping heat pump adoption and all of these kind of measures, rather than trying to kind of juggle both of those um, things that I mentioned at first. Yes,
2: yeah, so should they do something for the long term or just continue to focus on shielding everyone from the pain short term? Should we think like a politician or a statesman, do you think, Stefan?
3: Um, I think the answer there for me is, is a statesman, especially when it comes to energy efficiency, um, because as we highlighted, you know, it's very hard to pass on these high costs and drive this behavioral change to consumers, especially for the medium and long term. Um, they'd much, much prefer, I think, if you if you help them insulate their homes um, and install heat pumps and, and drive down demand that way. So I think Emma's raised a good point there. I, I would say that even at current prices, we're starting to see evidence that demand destruction might might reach the levels that you suggesting. But yeah, I, I agree with that overall sentiment that, you know, this this long-term heat pump ado- adoption and energy efficiency targets are ambitious, but I think there's a few pieces of the puzzle that EU hasn't really put enough emphasis on at the moment.
2: Right. I, I want to come back to Emma in the medium term in just a moment, but I am, the, the short term, and the, you can't escape the uh, politics of it to a point. There is, uh, a, you know, if I read the news, there's always the possibility that either um, uh, Europe could go harder and just cut it, cut Russia off for, from energy, oil and gas, pretty much straight away, or alternatively, Russia could try and cut Europe off. Uh, could what will happen if either of those, if either party pulls that trigger?
3: And um, further price rises. Uh, so I, I think this is fundamentally uh, this is fundamentally the reason that Gazprom Bank has not been sanctioned by the EU. It's the fact that even with these high prices and the changes in LNG flows we're seeing, um, uh, if Russia cut off cut off gas today for say a period of a year, it would it would be very very hard to make the European gas market work, and we would have to see um, rationing rationing which which actually is what germany is already looking at so germany um already moved into the first phase of um uh, measures to start looking at gas rationing and starting to really monitor stock levels and flows um so that's the reason i think from from the european side as as to why it's it's still being hesitant um on on directly sanctioning Russian energy imports, um, don't forget that it's it's not just about gas. So forty percent of uh, European coal imports, for example, come from Russia. Um, large large amounts of the diesel uh, we consume in Europe also also come from Russian refineries. So, um...
2: uh, Stefan, I, I you know the obvious question, and it's a military question, and it's way beyond uh, what any of us uh, uh, pay level. But in the end. <laughs> it's another short term pain assuming we went to this this happened and there was rationing and every but europe would survive i mean would do you think it would uh lead to a faster solution to the problem or not just just your just just your guess
3: yeah uh, yeah i, I think I, I think i'm i'm trying to increasingly stay away from from guessing about things like that <laughs> i think as a as a short-term gas markets analyst you know i think what you can really hope to do is present the scenarios right and we show our we show our curves with with what it looks like with 40 percent of russian supply 60 percent of russian supply um i think it's politically i think it's politically very difficult but i think you have to look at the impact on the economy of as awful as it sounds like the epo- not as awful as it sounds, but I think you have to look at the economic impact on Europe and and the social consequences that would have if we would completely embargo Russian energy. Um, and I think it's um, there are considerations there which which need to be. So so you, be
2: you wouldn't at. actually rate that as a high. Pro- if I was asking you as a fund manager, should I bet on that? You you would say it's a low probability outcome. Really, what less than twenty percent something or something.
3: I, I think at the moment, it, yeah, it's very unlikely that the EU will directly sanction Russian energy imports. Um, but I think you're getting it's it's a risk. Um, it's a risk and it's a risk the market has to price in, which I think is another factor, which is driving prices to the levels they're at at the moment. Um
2: and why storage has been built. Look, we're getting to the end but uh, of, of, of the time, unfortunately, but notwithstanding I could talk about this for a long time. Emma, I just wanted to come back to the overall, uh, what, are the, what do they call it, Euro 55 or the actual new green deal and all of its targets, including the phasing out of, uh, uh, of uh, basically fossil fuel cars, petrol cars, uh, by 2035, which I think is the target for new car sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, how Are you feeling overall that that transition is actually going to occur and that Europe is more or less on, on track for it? It hasn't gone from the Commission to Parliament. Let me ask about the timeline. What's the timeline for getting all of that plan approved from here?
4: Um, it, it, it can take a while for Commission proposals to actually make their way through into the legislation, but we've seen um, a pretty robust process but across the the European how, how the European Commission uh is set up alongside the Parliament and Council here and that I don't think that that process should be too much of a bottleneck um it yeah it can take time but from the phase out perspective um yeah these these are these are really mean, these are really shaking up the the auto manufacturing industry and I think I, I don't know how it is in Australia but at least at least here in the uk we i think it's it's pretty clear that um a lot of the automakers that are really active in this market now are really hitting it hard on electric vehicles i the I've never seen so much by way of like advertising but for for new EVs coming onto the market and that's because there are still a very powerful combination of um government support and you know signals from these phase out targets that these these are going to come um that being said from an economic standpoint we we do see a lot of electric vehicle adoption happening in europe it's one of our kind of faster moving curves um at least from when we just look at the fundamentals but there is still a gap the new sales uh uptake and what's happening on on bringing new cars into the market doesn't affect the secondary market quite as quickly as you would need to kind of you know roll over the whole fleet. So that kind of gap between where we get for the economics alone, uh, even if you consider things like current uh, policies and phase out um, proposals, the next level up that you need, like really deep electrification of the entire fleet by 2050, that's still a step away. So I think there is still a gap even here in europe where things are a little uh you know a little bit more advanced let's say than in than in some other regions um but yeah i think it's 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 an exciting time like the the whole energy market is in um i mean for want of a better word a lot of chaos but there are um clarifying things when we look at the levers that are being pulled like electrification being a big driver both in transport heating um even industry you know we haven't talked about hydrogen but it's now a much bigger part of the um equation here especially when we're talking about phasing out gas so yeah so it's an exciting time to be a a clean energy analyst and um yeah
2: I I will. It is exciting time. It's one of the reasons why uh, I I work so hard at it because I think we've got something like even at the old prices, three U.S. trillion of coal, gas, and oil per year that has to at production point values that has to go away, and if you can't find something to analyse in that, uh, really, you shouldn't be alive. But uh, let me. uh, I think uh, we've pretty much got to the end. I just. uh, uh well, let me just ask it this way Stefan: is there any sort of uh final comment uh thing what what interests you most at the moment what are you going to be focusing on for the next uh few weeks can i ask in general in terms of this top discussion
3: um uh, i think for us it's it's still the market is is really trying to work out and price in the risks which which you highlighted around around russian flows and and the politics there um I think this is Europe and this dynamic is really setting global gas prices. And um, when you're starting... Is
2: there any particular policy signal or or thing that you're keeping an eye, any flag that you're sort of watching more closely than another? What would be your short-term indicator, high-frequency indicator that you'd be paying most attention to?
3: Um, I think it's a change from Europe around the rhetoric um, with regards to Russian energy imports. Uh, and and whether the stance on on tackling those a bit more head-on changes um uh, I think even the market is is slowly reacting less to to all of the headlines we get um but for me that's that's a really interesting one and, and monitoring what the signals are, are coming out of the ec with regards to these plans and targets.
2: Thank you, and Emma, what's what's your thing for the medium term? That we, you know, the number one thing to keep an eye on.
4: Yeah, we're we're watching really closely the the discussions around energy market pricing, market reform. Um, I think this has come back on the agenda again. And you know, look from our side of things, we've been saying this for a long time that in order for the transition to actually occur, and even for you know wind and solar adoption to continue um, at the pace that 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 it is that it's needed and you know all of our technologies like including the the green hydrogen aspect these rely on really robust investment signals going to the industry um and in many cases we see those those signals weakening because of the way that the energy prices are structured here in Europe um you know when when we look forward into our longer term outlook on on how power prices will evolve in a high renewable system um you very quickly get into a missing money problem and the the current energy crisis is almost throwing the the opposite um challenge at politicians where you have um essentially what their too much money
2: that's that's a problem i can live with Yeah. so sorry
4: yeah yeah so so exactly so it's it's how this discussion will proceed in terms of market reform i think that's the big one the commission i think just uh, a week ago announced some discussions around. Potentially taxing windfall profits on on utilities um, as a way to help finance these emergency support measures. Oh yeah, um,
2: I thought that was terrible, terrible announcement. So this, so,
4: but look, so, yeah, things are getting pretty existential, and we're going to um, be monitoring that very closely.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Emma Champion and, and Stefan Ulrich for for joining Energy Insiders. Uh, I've learned a huge amount uh, in what. Uh, is, I guess, the hotspot of the world right now in terms of uh, energy and, and long-time leader in, in the uh, energy vendor. That's still the best term. Th- thanks again for joining us.
4: Thanks.
1: Uh, that was uh, Emma Champion and Stefan Uruk from uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance in Europe. Um, David, fascinating stuff. Uh, <laughs> one of those great technologies which we've known about for a long time and we've largely ignored but might finally come to centre stage is energy efficiency. It's sort of, sort of ironic now, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Uh, yes, look, I didn't, one of the things we didn't get to the bottom of in that, uh, uh, pod interview was really what the, how energy efficient uh, buildings in Europe are. Obviously, their problems have been different to those of warmer climates. They've had to uh, deal with cold climates. Um, and, and I think myself that in fact, I'm, I'm not it's not clear to me that there is huge gains to be made out of energy efficiency just yet it's also interesting to just think about it from a business perspective as to whether you have demand driven uh, change which can come uh, from say heat pumps and possibly electric vehicles you could see it that way as the consumer wants it um, uh, as opposed to supply pushed change uh, which comes from putting in big you know like utility scale wind and solar farms so the Quite a lot of, uh, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating, this endless energy transition, but uh, that was a long interview and covered a lot of inc- incredibly interesting ground. What else has been happening here in Australia, Giles?
1: Well, like in Europe, um, electricity prices um, have been going up, particularly in the northern states, North, uh, Queensland and New South Wales. This gets back to the north-south divide that um, email identified quite recently and has really been probably in existence for just over a year now. Basically, we're seeing really high prices in Queensland and New South Wales on average, um, much higher than in the southern states. Now, a couple of things to say about that. One of the southern states seem to have lower prices because on average, they get more renewables, more wind and solar generation, but there's other limiting factors such as the transmission capacity. But David, those prices seem to be jumping, spiking even higher and more consistently in recent times. What do you think is going on?
2: Well, I think it's the usual thing that happens in markets where there's a genuine story uh, along the lines that you have suggested, together with the fact that there's been uh, significant outages in some of the coal generation in both New South Wales and Queensland, uh, the thermal fuel prices for the reasons that we discussed in the earlier interview, but the coal price in Australian dollars export price is three hundred and fifty dollars a ton, uh, which is at least double what it's ever been before, or pretty much, um, and maybe more. And the gas price uh, has been hitting up, a, you know, at uh, hitting hydrogen price levels, if I can put it that way. <laughs> uh, so that's there, and then I think on top of that, um, the the Queensland, all the, all the generation companies that have the market power have recognised this and they're running with it and putting a bit of a short squeeze on on people that might have uh, uh, tried to uh, sell contracts at, at lower prices. So it's the usual thing. It's a good story that some people are going to make the most of. Um, prices are a long way divorced from fundamentals at the moment and they may continue to be. The futures price in New South Wales is over $100 uh, significantly over $100, right out to FY25. Now, that, that's, that's a that's a big deal. Uh, and that just reflects the, how difficult it is. And this is the other thing we need to come on to to get the new supply built. And it reiterates the point that if I've made it once and I'll be having to make another 1,000 times, you've got to get the new supply built before uh, before you close the old supply. But as soon as you signal that you're going to build new supply, that causes the old supply to close sooner and causes this kind of price squeeze, of which we've already seen several episodes.
1: Indeed, indeed. And we're getting pretty close to seeing some of the details of New South Wales renewable energy z- z- zones and their sort of pricing and access um, arrangements, uh, which they're still seeking to finalise. But are seeking to fast track, uh, largely because coal plants like Araring are going to be leaving the grid earlier than thought. Um A couple of things happening sort of politically. Um, The IPCC came out this week with, you know, probably the strongest wording yet, really just sort of saying, look, it's now or never. We actually have the technologies for deep and fast decarbonisation of electricity grid and the rest of the economy, but we've really got to get moving. And there's no point sort of faffing around, waiting for other technologies to come along, which seems to be our current government's um, main strategy, if they've got one at all. Uh, there's a few choice words to say about the governments who are pretending they were doing climate action and others who, um, including ours, um, actually assuming an increase in production of fossil fuels. But we've got an election obviously looming sometime very soon. Well, it's going to be in May, but it's going to be called sometime in the next couple of days, one assumes. David, we're starting to see a bit more policy announcements. The Greens have come out with a $6 billion um, electric vehicle package, which is really around sort of quite high rebates and a lot of investment in infrastructure. Um, I, I, don't, I don't
2: know. Do, 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 I, I guess, Charles. It's great to see the Greens uh, promoting these policies. Of course, there will be the inevitable question of how they're going to be paid for. And I I just, um, you know, the Greens' uh, policies won't be taken seriously until they're a bigger force in actual parliament. I mean, however nice they are, it doesn't really count till you've got some seats. Uh, what I would say, though, is that the vehicle standards, what Europe has shown is that when you Im- impose tougher fuel standards... The automotive industry globally does have a, a ability to respond very quickly. Average carbon levels in Europe fell very, very fast between 2019 and 2021 in response to changed European standards. And there's no reason, I mean, electric cars are 15%, pure battery cars of new sales in, in Great Britain in the last month. That's, you know, we could do a lot in Australia very quickly just by changing the rules. Uh, and it's not clear to me uh,
1: how that would be so expensive necessarily for consumers. Well, it just seems to be too much for the politicians. Um, Chris Bone has made clear on this and also the Driven podcast um, in the last few months that Labor is not about to introduce any vehicle emission standards. Um, so that's a bit disappointing. I mean, we saw the figures come out um, this week on uh, electric vehicle sales in Australia. I mean, they've doubled since last year, but it's still only 2.5% of total EV sales. That's just a fraction, as you mentioned. Look, Giles,
2: a, you can't get an EV, right? I mean, I just bought <laughs> one. To buy it, I had to go... Well, I mean, I don't want to talk about this, but to buy it, I had to buy uh, one that was essentially someone else had bought and decided they didn't need it because they had a new job. It was pretty much the only one for sale in Australia uh, of this particular model, uh, I had to uh, drive, fly up to Brisbane to pick it up, drive it all the way back. I mean, it's the, it doesn't really matter right now what the policy is. There just aren't any EVs to be had. There aren't um, but- any cars to be had.
1: Well, that's right, yes, but one of the reasons is is because they're all, what what cars they are making, they're sending off to countries which have got vehicle emission standards because that's what they need to do. So um, countries like Australia just get completely deprioritised. But um, look, that's probably worth a debate at another time. I think we've had a pretty um, eventful podcast, a great interview that you did with the two people from Bloomberg at New Energy Finance, um, and we thank them. And um, David, I hope you enjoy your new EV, and um, thanks to all our listeners out there everyone out there and thanks to our sponsors Evergen uh, and Pylon and um, we'll be back again this time next week.
2: Giles I'll just say one more on the way out I drove back from Brisbane yesterday outside of an extended stop at Ballina uh, which apparently doesn't have any power Uh, you know the rest of the trip uh, say 800 kilometers 45 minutes charging Uh, really it was no different to driving in my previous car which was a very good car.
1: Well that's good to hear, David. I've very it and in, fact, in fact we might try and tease out that for a bit of a story on the on, on our EV focused the driven podcast. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about the details of it all. Anyway, look, good to talk to you and we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen